the All Souls Witchy Women Podcast, Episode 9, An Interview with Deborah Harkness. Welcome to All Souls Witchy Women, a fan and definitely not official podcast where we talk all things All Souls. We are three women who met over Outlander and then jumped into the All Souls world like the time-traveling witches we wish we were. Our fingertips have been sparking with excitement as we prepared for this podcast. We finally get a chance to share our conversation with Deborah Harkness with the rest of the world. I'm Nikki, and on behalf of Janet and Ashley, I am thrilled to bring you Episode 9, A Conversation with Deborah Harkness. Yay! Yay! Oh, God. <sighs> So I just, I needed to get that out of my system because I've been holding this in Mm -hmm. for, for a week now and it's been really difficult and that felt good. So, so recently we had the opportunity to spend 30 minutes with Deborah Harkness and we talked about a discovery of witches and lots of other things in the all souls world. And it wasn't just that we got to talk to Deborah Harkness. It's that we got to do it when we were all in the same place at the same time. Because, I don't know, this might have been a little magical moment. But uh, when we got the call to talk to Deborah, it just so happened that we were going to be at Janet's house on this day. And the other, here, the other thing here is that we call Janet's house the Bishop House. <laughs> It expanded. It expanded. It did. And it has this lovely little house in the woods in the Northeast. And Ashley and I had wanted to go there for the longest time. And it just so worked out that we were all going to be there on the day when we talked to Deborah. And it felt like witchy magic. It was wonderful. Janet's house was only two bedrooms when we got there. It expanded to four. It was amazing. (laughs) Just like I thought it would. You know where I was pretty certain that witchcraft was involved is when I sat down and I had barely taken off my wintry boots and suddenly a a drink found its way into my hand and a fire Mm -hmm. into the fireplace. And that can only be from magic. That's all I can assume is that the Bishop House knew that I needed a bourbon cocktail (laughs) and a fireplace to deal with the outside New England temperatures. And poof, there it was. Yeah. And then we also got to watch episodes of A Discovery of Witches together, which was awesome. Uh, It was just, it was, I I mean, I know, what what are we, um, we're only a a few days into the new year, but God, it's going to be tough to beat that day, really. It's true. February through December, you got a lot to answer for because January was pretty awesome. And then because of the technology, you were going to do the interview, but Ashley and I were sort of sitting outside listening, which was kind of awesome. Also. Oh, it was. It brought back like all my memories of a teenager in middle school that was like, she's talking to the boy she likes. We can't be on the phone with her, but we just want to be in the presence of where she's talking. Maybe they'll put it on speakerphone. Maybe we can hear whether he likes her or not. That's sort of what I felt like. Because Nikki was like, I don't know why I felt like you guys were there. And I was like, oh, that's because I was lurking at the stairs listening. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Anyway. But for good reason. Deborah freaking Harkness. Oh, it was. It was absolutely wonderful. Um, We... We're not going to take up a lot of time here at the beginning because we want to get right to the interview. But um, one of the things that I wanted 
to say about this interview is uh, this isn't just a ploy to get you to listen to the last five minutes. I mean, it is a ploy, but you really should listen to the last five minutes of this because I've listened to it twice. And every time I get goosebumps because Deborah Harkness is this beautiful, kind spirit. And I, I don't, I don't feel like there's a lot of people like her in the world and it really shines through in these last few minutes of the interview. And it, it's just, it warmed my heart and soul. Yes to that. I agree with you. And if we've, if what you said makes people just kind of thumb ahead and scroll their, uh, their podcast player to the end, I'm going to make it difficult because the, the part that I'd like to highlight was somewhere in the middle and I'm not giving you the timestamp on where, <laughs> <laughs> but it was um, somewhere around where um, Nikki asked Deb about what it was like to hand over her baby, so to speak, to hand over her book series to the executive producers and the show team to, to make it into a television series. And the woman has a gift with words because she basically likens it to turning over, uh, you know, what you would do with a child. And you turn them, you send, put them on a school bus and you send them to school and you assume and hope that they're being trusted and cared for in the way that you would when you drop them off somewhere and that you know that they will be returned to you in the same state that they were, maybe even in a better place. And I just, I love that as a parent, I could relate. Mm -hmm. And I just love that she can absolutely very easily equate her, her labor of love that is this book series to being her baby. And I just liked <laughs> all of it. It's a crowd pleaser. So there. The bishop matriarch is a crowd pleaser. Janet goes with D all of the above. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So without further ado. Absolutely. Let's get to it. Everybody, we give you Deborah Harkness. Oh, this is so kind of you to do this. Thank you so much. We're overjoyed that you're going to take the time to talk to us for a little bit. Oh, well, this is exciting. This is the first conversation I've had with anybody about the TV series who wasn't my family. <laughs> well, I've got a question to ask you about that later. But, I, I mean, this has been an amazing week for you, right? You've had the, the premiere of in the U.S. and Canada of A Discovery of Witches. You've been to an awards show in London. <laughs> I know. I've been around and about. Yeah, so... I sort of stayed up on the 16th, um, and I guess it was like 10.30 on the West Coast when the, the the series was uploaded to Sundance. So I managed to see one episode, which was really surreal because I'd, I'd seen edits, I'd seen trailer reels, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it definitely feels better when and different when you see it actually up on the network. It's it's really cool. Yeah. So I did that. Then I went to sleep and I taught my classes and I went straight from the from the university to the airport, got on a plane, and went to England for the premiere. So I don't think I've kind of completely adjusted yet. But yes. <laughs> okay, so I have to ask you a question. Do your are your students aware of what's going on in in the rest of your life? I think probably some of them are, but most of them are are wonderfully clueless, which I love, um, and uh, or they're hiding it really well. It's hard to tell. My students are very, very sophisticated and kind of cool, so you know it's hard to always tell. I I know that a few of my students know, and then I think for the rest, it's it was news to them. I I sort of had to say to them. 
you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. Uh, we're going to have to reschedule something on Tuesday. We need, I need you to come to the library and uh, check into special collections and do something independently because I have to go to this award show in England. And okay, okay. And this is what is it for? And I said, well, this television show that I'm an executive producer on and a couple of them frowned and scratched their head. So it was this kind of interesting rollout. But then they were really, they were really quite sweet about it. So um, it was nice to have their support. So I want to talk about the a discovery, which is a television show, obviously. But can you talk a little bit about what it's like to go to the the award show and have that experience? Uh yeah. You know, I was really nervous all day. You you kind of get up, and my stomach was doing all sorts of somersaults and flip flops, mostly because I'd never been to an award show and didn't know what to expect. <laughs> uh, you know, and you do things like you put all your you hang up all your clothes, and then you stare at them a while for a while, and then you put on your shoes and you walk around the room and you panic because you think, oh God, I'm going to get blisters, and so you run out to the drugstore and buy band aids, and then you come back and. Uh, and by the time we actually got to the um, the award show itself, we had been sort of slow. The co- the cast of A Discovery of Witches had been slowly congregating in the hotel bar, and I we were all drinking sparkling water. And then about forty five minutes in, the odd glass of wine started to show up. So we were feeling pleasantly <laughs> chill by the time we got to the awards which was good because um, the minute the red carpet started, it began to rain and snow and oh. it was not completely covered. So it was it was surreal. You go down this, uh, this red carpet, this mile long red carpet and the press were all on one side and fans were all on the other side and we walked down the red carpet in the snow and in the rain and stopped and had pictures taken at various places and there were the stars of British Prulith from the Great British Bake Off was behind me, <laughs> which made it very difficult to continue walking because I love her. Uh, we got to meet a couple of members of the Call the Midwife uh, cast, which was really exciting because I love that show yes. as a historian of science and medicine. So it was wild to look around you and see all of these people who had been on your television screen. Um, and and of course, you know, we were, we were so thrilled to be uh, among the best new drama nominees and uh when bodyguard won i mean bodyguard had been such a blockbuster success Mm -hmm. in the uk uh we it was it was still it was just we felt so honored that we were in the same category as a show that um had broken every viewing record in in the united kingdom not to mention you know the cry and girlfriends and and uh and killing Eve. So right. it was a great night, a really yeah. great night. Well, um, yeah. I, I, you mentioned shoes and I have to tell you, you're killing it with the accessory game. The, those shoes and that purse. I'm all about the accessories as someone <laughs> whose weight fluctuates a lot. Um, often up the scale as well as down what you, I know for sure is that a good clutch bag is never not your size. <laughs> so I am the queen of accessories for this reason because it's something that I I know I will uh, have and be able to enjoy. I actually bought that clutch bag for the Cardiff premiere of the TV series, and now it's just become sort of my discovery of witch's bag. I, I remember seeing it um, w- when you posted it earlier in Cardiff, and I, it, it's amazing. 
So yeah, a clutch bag that is bound like an old rare book and yeah. the size of a rare book. And then has all these groovy moons and shooting stars. What What's not to love? Uh, exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned earlier uh, this past week that your mom had, had said that she was watching A Discovery of Witches. I, that must be surreal. And yes. Did she like it? She did love it. So she was... Um, she was concerned, like many people, because she didn't quite understand how she was going to find the channel to stream it. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. But we got it up on her Roku, and so she was all set and good to go. And uh, she she watched it starting in the morning of Thursday, and sometime in the afternoon, she had finished all eight episodes, and she wrote and just said how much she loved it and how she was just bursting with pride, which every child likes to hear from their parents and uh, she'd had a chance to go with me in October on book tour in the UK she visited um, her family our family in Liverpool because my mom was born in England in Liverpool and grew up there during the uh, aftermath of World War II and so uh, she had kind of gotten to she gotten to meet members of the cast she'd gotten to meet Edward and Malin and Louise Brealey uh, and other members of the cast. And then, so for her to see it, I think there was also that little extra thrill of feeling like she knew some of the people. So that was pretty exciting. It's a it's a lovely gift to be able to give your parents something like that, that they can kind of cavell over. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it was really special. And even, even older parents, I, I know they still have conversations about the things that they're children have accomplished she kind of wins in all those conversations with her friends right I don't I don't know she's she's in a wonderful uh community here in in uh Los Angeles that has got some pretty distinguished people in it so (laughs) one of one of the other people in the the community was um the father of Michael Cunningham who wrote the hours so (laughs) You know, she she does have some competition. I'm, I'm pleased to say, but that's uh, but that's it's still good. It's still good. Uh, okay, this this is a personal question for me because I work in in two humanities departments at the University of Michigan, and um, our faculty they publish articles and and journals a lot, um, but it's not often that they get a lot of acclaim or recognition. And recently one of our faculty members got a review in the New York, uh, in the New Yorker. And at the next faculty meeting, there was like lots of back slapping and high fives and things. What is it like for you when you walk into a faculty meeting after the movie based on your book has premiered? Um, well, I think it's different than if it had been an academic book. (laughs) I think that there's still a way in which, you know, people just, I'm a historian. I'm not in the writing department. I guess if I was a a member of the creative writing faculty, it might be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But, you know, really, I think it's still the case that um, people are very interested in what's going on. They're very supportive. But most of the time, what we're doing is we're talking about, you know, undergraduate curriculum reform or new job hires or whatever. And it doesn't really um, affect kind of that academic side of me weirdly sure um so it's it's almost like I have a couple of different little compartments in my life I'm sort of maybe I'm a little bit like Clark Kent going you know I go into the phone booth and I put on my <laughs> my professor clothes and 
then I put on my writer clothes and zip out again. So, um, so yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so, when we Ashley and I saw you in Atlanta in October when you were on book tour, and you talked yeah. you talked a lot about how the characters talk to you, and that's how you write. You know, the, the book you write depends on the character that's talking to you at the moment. And, right. And I just as as I've watched the show and and think about that that night that we heard you talk and and you said that you had written some of Times Convert on set during the filming of A Discovery of Witches. I I was just wondering in having been there on set, having seen the characters bring your words to life, has it impacted at all the way that they talk to you or the way you think about the characters? Um I do know that with Times Convert, I did keep changing Marcus's hair to dark. Um, and, and I had to be just because he would be walking right in front of me. And there he was. And he had dark hair. And so that I had to keep reminding myself. Not really. I think that they're so close to what I imagined them that they've just sort of blended together. Um, I will say that uh, Lindsay Duncan's voice definitely has when I write Isabeau dialogue, I hear in my head, Lindsay Duncan saying it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mostly because in my voice, in my head, Isabeau's voice was slightly higher pitched and had a stronger, a stronger French accent. Um, but now it's just sort of mushed into this weird Lindsay Duncan, but slightly French accent. So, so that's a big change. <laughs> I, I have to say, I, I know that in the book, she was written to be a younger woman, more Close, closer to Matthew's age, but in my mind, I think I always pictured Lindsay Duncan. She's amazing. Well, I have to tell you that I had her picture up on my idea board for Isabel. I had all these images, and one of them was a picture of Lindsay Duncan in the role of the Marquis de Martoy in Dangerous Liaisons. Uh, which she was in with Alan Rickman in the 1980s. So that was a little while ago, but it was a picture of her. I mean, when I described Isabel, I described Lindsay Duncan. So when they said to me, you know, we've looked at some younger actresses, um, but we just don't feel, you know, we, we just can't find anybody who's got the can be convincing as a multi-thousand-year-old woman, <laughs> and you know, um, but we're thinking, what would you think of Lindsay Duncan? I practically fell over, <laughs> and I said, well, you know, she was my, she was on my idea board for for Isabel. That would be amazing, and uh, they they approached Lindsay Duncan, and you know, the rest is history, as they say. So it just felt like it was the right thing to do. Um, I do think that. Uh, it would have been very, very difficult to find anybody who could have conveyed the kind of wisdom and timelessness and elegance um, who is only in their 20s. I think that would be very, very difficult um, to do that. And we just didn't find that person. And and Lindsay Duncan was just a perfect candidate for for the role so i was thrilled very happy right I, I you have touched on all the things that make her made her so perfect um to me i mean just the way she carries herself she she could be 1500 years old or she could be you know 40 we don't <laughs> it's oh i well i know and and she just does have that elegance and when you when she moves um mm. she looks like a tiger on the prowl yes. she really really does 
And I was there the day that they filmed the scene where she takes Diana hunting, uh, complete with the fox. And I'll just say that uh, anybody who has seen it knows what I'm talking about. Um, and I, I literally, I could not believe it. I, I just went, when they called cut and stopped filming, I screamed because she was just so perfect <laughs> in that scene. Um, it was better than anything I'd ever imagined. So that's pretty terrific. <laughs> I, there was a lot of chewing in that scene. There and... was a lot. <laughs> yes, we had we had multiple um, chewy foxes uh, for her to work on over the course of of the shoot. So yes, we we definitely it definitely had to be something she could kind of sink her teeth into. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the hardest part for you about handing over your book baby to TV? I mean, we know that you had an executive producer role and so that you you did have some control, but no doubt there were there were things that you had to let go of. We, we all know about the yoga scene that got cut that many of us loved. But was it difficult for you to hand it over and and to to give in to final decisions when they maybe weren't what you really wanted? Um, well, I don't think it's easy for any of us not to get their own way 100% of the time. But um, at the same time, you know, the filmmaking is a collaborative medium or television making. And I knew that going in. And really, book, you know, writing books is too. I, I, I don't write my books on my own. I've got beta right. readers, and I've got multiple editors, and it goes through multiple revisions. And there are some things even in the book writing process that I cut that I have regrets over. And for the most part, I, even if it's hard, I agree fundamentally with the underlying decision. So with the case of television, I just had to really trust that when they said to me, there is no way we can do this yoga scene and do justice to it, it's better left to the imagination. I just had to believe them that was true because what we didn't want was a terrible yoga scene right. that would sort of scar all of our imaginations forever and we would never be able to get past it. It's just better to just let it be. So it was, it was, you know, that was just a sort of process, but it was a process that um, I felt pretty prepared for. I think, you know, it's oh, it's also always hard to let your children grow up and go off and have independent lives. But <laughs> you kind of, you kind of have to do that. You know, you've got to put your kids on the school bus and wave at it, and you think, well, God, I hope there's no disasters, and I hope nobody bites anybody, and I hope there, <laughs> you know, nobody gets sick or whatever. But and you're relieved uh, when they come home and they've only got a skinned knee, and you know, whatever. But it's it's very much like that feeling of you you have to feel that you trust the people that you put your baby um you know into the hands of and and I did with with Bad Wolf and the production team and mm -hmm. I think that the the results really speak for themselves I think it's lit as I think I've I've said before I, I literally think it is one of the finest book adaptations mm -hmm. I have ever seen because I believe it really preserves the feeling of the book. It's not identical to the book, but I think it feels like the book. And um, and I would I 
the other two aren't in the room right now, but I think I would speak for all three of us when we say that we agree completely because we we came in, we actually met each other through Outlander. And so, and that's a show that's in its fourth season right now. And there are all sorts of nightmares with the adaptation. The books are huge and all those kinds of things. And And sometimes the show strays quite a bit from the books, but I would agree all eight episodes feel like the book. And even things that maybe scenes we wanted to see, I can look back now and say, oh, that that probably wouldn't have worked and that would have taken too much time to explain that. And, you know, it's not relevant right. to the story really. Right. And, and I think the other thing was, was, you know, from the very beginning when I was looking, you know, was, was talking to people who really wanted to make this into a film or a TV show, one of the first things I, one of my first litmus tests for them was I would say, well, you know, how do you want to do this? And honestly, if they said, well, you know, we just want to stay in Diana's head, I, I would be less interested in that partnership. Right. I really wanted all, you know, to, from the very film and TV gave us this amazing opportunity to uh, turn what was a, a story that started with one woman became a man and a woman and then became a man and a woman, their family, their friends, and just kind of grew and grew and grew. We had the opportunity through television or film to to weave though that world around them in from the beginning. And I was convinced from very, you know, from my own thinking on this very early on that the way to tell the story well, oh, an echo, um, was uh, to get, um, you know, all of those those different stories kind of up and going at the same time and to kind of uh, weave them all together from the very beginning, not just at the end. Right, right, right. And that was, con- I mean, I think it's controversial, uh, controversial. I don't think every reader of the books loves that. But honestly... I think it was the way to make really, really good television, which was our goal mm-hmm. with this adaptation. Well, I, th- I think you succeeded. You talked a little bit about the production team, and I know that there were a lot of women involved in the production of the show, which isn't something we always see in television and movies. Can, do you, can you talk a little bit about how that came to be? Sure. You know, I think that... Um, we were in an interesting position because the two executive producers who own uh, Bad Wolf, Jane Tranter and Julie Gardner, just um, don't go into any project assuming that the best, you know, that they're going to, um, they're, they're not going to the sort of the same cast of characters. They're not just going uh, to male directors or to the male director they worked with the last time. You know, I think that there's a weird way in which uh, television and film just kind of, like all occupations or or fields, kind of perpetuates what's already there and up and running. And um, in the case of Jane and Julie, you know, they, they always just went out and found the best person for the job. Mm-hmm. And they paid a lot of attention to to that issue of sort of who is the best person to do this. So they, it's not that they were out and say, we will only use female directors or female writers or, um, you know, because we actually did not have an all women uh, production team. But at the same time, you know, when, when all the 
all the uh, dust settled, what we were left with was a really amazing and talented group um, of, of women and men, um, all of whom were drawn to the story and the project. And I think it meant that there were all kinds of really important differences in the, in the way that the story was told and what people felt they needed to do in terms of adding drama or adding tension, of framing shots, of dwelling on certain characters, of developing them. And, and it was a really beautiful thing to see because obviously the story um, is, has a, a, a strong female focus. So to, to have that um, in some ways echoed in the, in the production team, I think um, really brought a richness and a complexity to mm -hmm. it that, again, I think you can really see on the screen. Right. One of the things that, that we've noticed that we loved in the show, and we're probably going to do a podcast episode about it, is the music and how well it complemented what was going on on the screen, but also, so not just the orchestral arrangements, but um, the vocals. Yeah. And and we, we know that music is is integral to your writing process, and, and you've been so generous in sharing your playlists. Can, can you talk about, did you have any involvement in the selection of the music? Um, I did. The show. Um, yeah, I, I did. As you can imagine, I have a lot of opinions, so <laughs> it's a, a little hard for them not to have my input on things. But, um, but you know, we we would sort of um, throw in suggestions, talk about various options, various artists. I know that they look they went through my playlist. A lot of times the, the songs that are in my playlist were just a little too on the nose to go into a soundtrack um, because, you know, the parallels were obviously quite close between what I was listening to when I was writing and, um, and what ended up in the adaptation. So they would just kind of go a few degrees off. So I, my playlists, for example, have other songs by this wonderful artist named Lissy. And... They instead went with a Fleetwood Mac cover of Go Your Own Way by Lissy. So there are these wonderful kind of detours, and I love that song at that moment. Um, <laughs> and it was, again, that kind of real proof positive that, you know, sometimes the very best results happen when collaboration is at work and people have got different, you know, pieces of the pie. And, of course, I was incredibly happy to have Rob Lane do our, our soundtrack. Rob Lane is a gifted um, composer. I still remember the music from the uh, H. Lane band. So when they told me he was going to do it, I just knew that as the music director, he was um, going to be a great person to work with just to flesh out all of those different soundtracks. And I love that they they were able to use, um, you know, Imagine Dragons uh, demons uh, in the show as well, which right. was one of my favorite songs. The Fleetwood Mac cover was is was that out there, or was it was it done special for the show? No, no, it was out there. Okay, it's on a, an album of hers. Okay, all right. Um, yeah, yeah, it's definitely out there, and uh, and she's really, you know, again, she's one of my very favorite artists. I listen to her all the time. So for, for them to sort of dig into her, um, her discography and her music and be able to kind of pull that and say, okay, wait a minute, what about this? Well, it was just 
Perfect. She's going to have a few more fans because I didn't even recognize that as the song until it was about halfway through. And and then my ears sort of adjusted and I thought, oh my God, I know that song. Not in this way, but this is an amazing version of it. And and fit the moment really well. She's she's really extraordinary. And and again, I just love I love the idea that the show and the books just kind of continue to expand people's worlds and bring new 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 people and new characters and new music and new whatever into into people's orbit is just it's it's a huge huge thrill for me mm-hmm. okay so we have to ask you a question about your recent trips over the holidays did you learn anything new about gala glass yes oh wonderful. gala glass has spent time in new zealand which i did not know before oh uh so it was uh, a wonderful experience and i learned I learned a little bit about why Gallo Glass loves Australia and New Zealand um, and how it makes him feel and and why he's drawn to that part of the world. So, uh, yeah, it was it was wonderful in all sorts of ways in all sorts of ways. And for me, um, traveling listening to new music, hearing new voices, new accents, hearing new stories, seeing new things. That's kind of what I need to do to feed my imagination so I can craft these stories. So it was a, a wonderful few weeks um, in a part of the world I did not know at all except by reading about it. And obviously to tell Galaglass's time, uh, story in due course, um, I needed to go there so that I could uh, get a feel for it. <laughs> well, I'm glad he spoke to you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so I, I know that we're, we're getting close to the, um, to our time, but one of the things that, that the three of us wanted to, to know is, um, you know, your books... That there, there's a story about witches and vampires and demons in your books. There's also a few other stories if if readers are in tune and and they they make some wonderful, powerful statements about you know, people's ability to get along and and leaving behind prejudices and and I could go on. Uh, my four, you should know this. My fourteen year old daughter was just, was describing the show to her dad and. And because he's like, should I watch this show? And he's and she said to him, well, you know, it's you know, she's a university professor. She she's been hiding. She's been hiding from herself all of her life. And the, and the book's really about self-discovery. Wow, that's a pretty good synopsis. <laughs> very well done. You must be proud. I am very proud. But are there particular takeaways that you would like for people to to have from the books or the show? If you if you could give people a list of three things to take away. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think one of them is is that there's all kinds of people in the world who are hiding in plain sight, mm-hmm. who we look past because they make us uncomfortable or they challenge us, or we don't know what to do about our own feelings about them. Um, whether they're people of different races, different religions, different ethnicities, different languages, um, different sexual orientation, different gender identity, you know, and a different socioeconomic class. And that um, 
what everybody in the world wants is to be seen and valued for who they are, um, not for not for anything else. And it's such a simple lesson, but I think it is so um, so important, especially in the world and given our our situation. You know, I I wrote these books a decade ago. Uh, and yet, in some ways, I weirdly feel like the message is sadly more relevant now than it was in 2008. Mm -hmm, because in 2008, there were signs that people were, uh, that, that some of the um, expansion of rights and tolerance and acceptance was starting to shrink again. Mm -hmm. And I know as a historian that that's the way the cycle goes. There's an expansion, then there's a contraction. Right. There's a rise, then there's a fall. And I think I wrote the books because I felt like it was bound to happen, but I kind of wanted, hoped against hope that it wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. Sadly, I think it has happened. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I just, I, I, I really do just want people to stop and think about the fact that, you know, Diversity is what saves us and makes us strong. And being different can really save the world. And and as Rabbi Lowe said to Diana in Shadow of Night, you know, just being tolerated isn't enough. Right. Uh, we've got to find out a way to accept our differences and embrace them because that's what makes us truly great. Um, at least that is what I believe and what I believe that history shows us. So I think, um, and that has to start with every individual person accepting themselves, oh. right? There's, we can't possibly go out and be tolerant and loving and accepting of other people if we can't even manage to do that for ourselves. So, so your daughter is right. You make me cry, that, Deb Harkness. You make me cry. Oh, no. Did I? No. I, I think that's good. Tears can be good for this, though. <laughs> no, I just, I, you have the sweetest spirit about you. And I wish there were, I wish there were a hundred more of you to, to spread your brand of, of just love and acceptance and joy and tolerance. Can we Well, you? I feel like there are millions of people who have read the books all over the world. Mm -hmm. And what I like to think is that there are millions of you <laughs> who are just uh, that little bit more loving to yourselves and that little bit more loving of the flawed and imperfect people who are around you. Um, because honestly, that is what is going to save the world is, right. is that kind of spirit. Um, and so I take great heart in the fact that so many people have read the books and, and, and just hope, you know, I, I was a teacher because all I ever wanted to do in the world was make a difference. And I like to think that my books are my biggest classroom. And if they make a difference, then I, I have, I have done what I set out to do in my life. Well so. said. Now I'm crying. <laughs> Jeepers, creepers. All right. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for having me come around and, and chatting about this show. It was really fun. I'm, I'm just thrilled that I was able to 
to sit down and chat with you about it. And you have to say hi to all the other witchy women. I will. They're, they are downstairs and, and they say hello to you. And I will I will tell them you said hello. And thank you so much for, for taking some time. I, I know you're a very busy lady right now. I am, but uh, I have always got time for the All Souls family. So thank you guys so much for your podcast and doing what you do. And uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. Thank you, Deborah. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. And that was that. So... What did you guys think? I mean, seriously, you, we've had the, we've had the, we've had the benefit of listening to this a couple of times, but you've heard it again. So what, what, what do you think? What do you think about Deborah Harkness? Oh, is this the part where we get to do the general squeeing again? Cause I'm good at that. I think, I think so. Here's what I love about it. Just, just one thing. Cause there was a lot. Um, but I love in listening to her talk to you that it just confirms what what we've seen um, in interviews, whether they be written or verbal or video, whether she be in person at any of the events events we've been to, is that she just seems so approachable, so approachable as a woman who has achieved everything that she has, but yet she just still comes off like one of your gal pals who just wants to sit and have some coffee or wine with you and chat about highly intelligent things as well as some completely nonsensical ones and make time in equal measure for both. And that's the kind of friend you want to have. And so I loved that in listening to you talk to her, it just sounded like two friends gabbing. When we were in Atlanta to see her on the book tour, we both kind of kidded that we wanted to see if she would go out for a beer with us. And I, the poor woman at that point, she was in a different city every night. And I think if she had had a moment to breathe, I honestly do believe she would have said, yeah. <laughs> and it would have been an amazing conversation. I am convinced of that. You know, there's some people in this world I just look at and go, I'd like to have a beer with them sometime. She is one of them. Take me with you. I guess as as a parting thought, I one of the things that I take away from this is that when it's, it's somewhere in the middle of, of the interview, but she talks about, it's, talk, it's, it's when she talks about uh, giving up, to your point earlier, Ashley, when she talks about giving up control of, of her book for the adaptation process. She makes a point to say that, you know, this is all a group effort. Even when she writes, she's just writing on her own, I think, but she's not. She has a, she has a creative team that, you know, offers her suggestions. And, you know, she said sometimes... Things come out of the books, and I maybe don't even agree with them, but I have to trust the people who are there to help me because we all want to make a good product. And I know that I can't just I can't just trust myself because there are people who know more than I do. And I, I don't know. I, I hear a lot of people quite often today talk about how you know nobody helped me get where I am. I I'm self-made. I I did everything on my own. And it was just so humbling for me to hear her talk about that, to to know the success that she's gained, but for her to recognize that and embrace the fact that she didn't do it on her own, that she has people around her who are, who are helping her make decisions that she doesn't necessarily agree with all the time, but they're doing it for the good of the product that she's making. And I just, you know, I want my daughter actually to listen um, to that interview because you know, that, that's the kind of person I want her to be when she grows up. 
Well, and I think she, it's the kind of world that she creates in her books, and I think she lives it. You know, I mean, I think she, she walks the walk, and mm-hmm. I, think that, I think that comes through, uh, you know, in the interview. I mean, she's, the fandom is, you know, terrifically well-behaved and pleasant and welcoming. Oh, my goodness, yes. And we do have some experience with some other ones, and, um, you know, it's, I think that she's setting the tone and, you know, you can see that in just sort of just the way she was with this whole interview. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, ladies, anything else, any parting words before we wrap up this interview episode? No, although, you know, basically 2009, uh, 2019 started off on a super high note for it us. Did. So <laughs> because we it got, did. because we got this, it, we had this interview in January. So, I'm a little worried about how the rest of the year is going to go. <laughs> no kidding. I just wanted to say thank you to her for, I know you, you did, but just as a parting thought, it was, it was just wonderful to, uh, to be able to set it up and to have this connection point with, with our favorite author. So look forward to doing more interviews. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There is nothing more I could add to that. So I think with that, we will say thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us as we discussed all things, all souls. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And then if you feel inspired, you'll leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to join in the conversation, find us on Twitter and Instagram at AllSoulsWW, on Facebook at All Souls Witchy Women Podcast and Blog, and online at AllSoulsWitchyWomen.com. See you soon.